Hello everyone, my name's Jack Fernan and this is Exploring Existence, the podcast that looks at the teachings and practices of the world's religions through the lens of personal experiences. Today on the podcast, I spoke with Eleanor Therese Rose, who is a member of the traditionalist Catholic Church, but she was not always so. Eleanor started her spiritual journey in the Anglican Church, but has since ventured from her roots and explored several Christian churches, particularly in the evangelical movement. In our conversation, we focus on the journey that she has taken to find solace in the Catholic Church and the new teachings that she discovered along the way. We spoke about the evangelical movement, its differences from Catholicism and where the two churches are heading today, and why Eleanor decided to join the Catholic Church. We also spoke about the current climate with coronavirus and how it is providing an opportunity for people to deepen their faith. Now, this was the first interview that we have done over the internet, with myself being in Sydney and Eleanor being in Northamptonshire in the UK. And so while we're all isolated at home, we're going global here. And as always, thank you for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thanks, Eleanor, for, for coming online with me. Um, as I was just saying before, this is the first time we've sort of done done one of these online. So we'll just see how we go with it all. Um, but yeah, first of all, just thanks for, thanks for joining me. Yeah, it's nice to be talking to you and. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty crazy times, but where, where are you at the moment? I'm currently in the countryside. Um, so I left London where I was working. Um, so now, uh, making the most of, so it's having the privilege of being in the countryside, whereas a lot of people are stuck in the cities. Yeah. Uh, being in the countryside is forced isolation so it's probably <laughs> yeah, exactly. not quite used to it anyway yeah yeah um so Eleanor you've um as far as I'm aware like you have sort of recently come to your your faith um or you've sort of you've, you've sort of changed direction a little bit um do you want to just start off with a little bit about um your your background and um how you sort of started to find started to find God? Yeah, so I was baptized in Anglican um, and grew up in the Anglican church. And then over time, I started to get more involved in the charismatic side of things. So as a teenager, um, went to these big summer events and was quite inspired by. Um, a lot of quite quite conservative, like small T conservative Christian teaching, um, and I suppose I um, always had a belief, always had a strong belief um, in God, um, and in the in the Nicene Creed, I suppose, um, throughout my teenage years, uh, and then it kind of became more through that kind of avenue um, disassociated or. Um, concerned with the organized church and thought that this kind of bubble of charismatic um, movement that I got into was Christianity itself. There was nothing else really um, that was um, following the true teachers of the Bible. So it's quite Bible oriented. Um, So I was always kind of against what I perceived to be the established church, whether that was the Church of England here or even more the Catholic Church. Um, And so I followed in that kind of bubble. And then 
but I loved it as well. Um, and then I became involved in the kind of yeah, evangelical movement at um, university. And there I became really involved in kind of mission work and evangelization, um, including of Catholics. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's kind of a bit of my background. Um, so it's basically quite zealous evangelical say so when you were going back when you were doing those um those charismatic events what what was what how, how did they work were, were you how old were you and um what sort of was the format with those with those events so first of all i'd say it was about 13 or 14 and there would be about i think few thousand young people at these festivals they would hold in England I suppose quite comparable to other countries where they do them um, and there would be so it's praise music um, talks to inspire people uh, from the Bible um, and also invitations of the Holy Spirit which was quite different and I suppose not something you see in the established church so there would be everybody gathered in these big tents and then they would invite the Holy Spirit to um, so it's fall on people and, um, and some response to be seen, like to either prompt somebody's face or them to have a reaction. So I actually knew quite a lot of people who would, yeah, as you've probably seen, you know, have that kind of reaction and either fall to the ground or, um, yeah, make some kind of noise or have some kind of vision. Um but that never happened to me and my sister. Um, and we we actually were um, somewhat like deemed among others somewhat more, uh, I suppose, conservative in our Christian beliefs than a lot of the other people to whom it happened. So we were a little bit confused about it always. Like, why are we not having these um, gifts of like speaking in tongues and all this kind of thing? Did that make you a little bit sceptical of what... Um, yeah, yeah. What... At first, actually, you know, it's only in recent times I've grown a bit more sceptical. I think initially I just thought there was something wrong with me that um, God would God wasn't kind of giving me those experiences. Like I wasn't, I don't know, didn't deserve or need those experiences. Um, so I just wasn't didn't have a strong enough faith. I suppose that's one thing they kind of hone in, like drill into you that your faith isn't strong enough or you're not open enough to it if it's not happening to you. Um, and so I never judged the people to whom it was happening. Um, and I still have a couple of friends who were in that and they do have so strong faith still. But I think the tragic thing that I noticed is that like a lot of people to whom it happened lost their faith quite soon after because it became quite an experiential thing that they were constantly expecting this kind of emotional experience. And so when that was not happening anymore, they started to doubt their belief in God. Right. So you saw that after people had had those quite deep experiences, if it wasn't um, grounded in something a bit more substantial, that they began to lose their faith going forward. Yeah, I think one thing that my sister and I noticed when we started to spend more time in these groups was that there was constantly a like a pursuit or a search or an experience, something to kind of validate the faith that they could not 
have this kind of, what I've now come to understand as spiritual desolation and spiritual consolation that a lot of the saints write about and talk about, that that's not at all present in the kind of charismatic movement. I mean, I don't know fully, like there might be elements now that do reflect that, but there's a constant pursuit of these consolations. Um, yeah. At, at that time, you're obviously quite young. Um, what were you getting out of those those festivals that you were going to? Do you remember ever thinking, oh, yeah, I really, I really like that or I'm really drawn to that sort of teaching? Um, I suppose it helped me in my faith a lot. It was a really good um, stepping stone. I suppose I was able to... Um, you know, take take a lot of the teaching home and be able to read the Bible in a better way, and kind of I suppose try and live it out, um, try and become more I suppose self denying and um, I don't know living out the commandments, living out the beatitudes, and as a teenager, kind of um, I suppose also is that knowledge of being born again? Do they? Um, teach you so you obviously live in a way that you want to reflect that you are born again that you are one of the chosen ones I suppose it's quasi-Calvinist that you want to show that you are one of the predestined. It's an interesting idea the the idea of predestination especially for a young uh, a kid still in their teenage years Um, usually the born-again experiences come from people who are a bit older and perhaps grew up on the wrong side of the tracks or never knew God from a young age, but they come to God at, at a bit old, older and it's quite a cathartic experience for them. But it's, it's, a, it's quite hard to have that sort of born-again experience when you've grown up, grown up in that tradition yeah, so it's kind of constantly asking yourself, am I, like, am I born again? Like, did I give myself in that moment to God? Like, was that that one moment where I gave myself to God and I was transformed? And, I mean, I would say, you know, I have, like, did it a few times when I was a teenager, and but I would always doubt myself because there were so many people who would be living this very, you know, this, have this amazing conversion experience and testimony where, they were living this very, um, the prodigal son kind of moment where they were living kind of very far away from God and they had this radical experience and then they started living in this very transformed way. Um, and so I doubt myself as to whether I, I was, like whether there had been a certain moment when I was born again or whether I was just plodding along in this kind of <laughs> other way. And yeah. I had um, started going to this church where that was run by, pastor who had been in prison and he had been a criminal he'd been involved in um in like drug dealing and violence and like many things in life but his mother had always prayed for him and he had this amazing profound uh, conversion and he was really on fire for god and it was really inspiring and i think going to that church came at the right time of my life because that was like between the ages of 16 and 18 when i was kind of you know getting preparing to go to university and things so that was really a good moment to become very um inspired in the teachings of the faith what do you think it was about him that um really lit yourself on fire i think it was that i felt i was really spending time with the people that 
um, Christ came to serve and Christ came to heal, you know, these people that are very far from God. Um, and the church obviously attracted a lot of people who had similar backgrounds. And you see the transformation in their lives. Um, so I still look back at that and I'm still really inspired by how how the church gave them a real home. Um, and I mean, obviously it prompts the, the church itself prompted some accusations of being a bit like a cult because, you know, it was very close knit and they really frowned upon anybody leaving. Um, but at the same time, there was, there was a there was a tangible feeling that that they were living out Christianity and that I suppose we kind of saw in him that the things that he was saying were. They seemed so inspired. It seemed as if you know the Holy Spirit was talking through him because it was always something that was I don't know relevant for you at the time or just something that was convicting in some way. Yeah, a lot of those charismatic leaders they draw huge followings just because mm-hmm. uh, their message can be so can be so powerful. But when you went to university, you um, stopped going to that church. Is that right? Yes, yes. I joined a new church, which I think similarly was good for me at the time. I think basically when I look at my life, I see it all as this big line, this big journey of providence. So I see that that church I joined at that time was exactly where God wanted me at that time. Um, so it was a church that was very much focused on the the loving side, you know, the agape side of, of uh, well, it means the whole basis of Christianity, but just that yeah. very much uh, like <laughs> flows um, from everything they do. Um, so they were very much involved in the community, involved like with the least, but it was very student dominated church. Um, it kind of felt like a giant family. There were about 400 people there. Um, and this is, is this when you were at university? Yes, yeah. It was an undergraduate, yeah. Right. And so the, the, the church was predominantly made up of, of the students? Yeah, so hundreds of students who were all all very kind of passionate about God, um, passionate about um, Christianity. And so you know, there, was, there was always somebody to inspire you. And I'd have my own mission group. We'd meet once a week for, for dinner and praying for each other, you know, um, whether that was using the Bible, whether it was laying hands on one another. Um, so it was a really amazing um, three years, really, being involved in that church. And I was actually baptised for a second time while I was there. So they would often have kind of full immersion baptisms um, that would kind of signify, um, you know, your decision to be baptised. But I don't know if they had the teaching that um, baptism itself is... Um, regenerates you that it's efficacious I don't know if they saw it more as a symbol um, but nevertheless it was a really uh, joyful um, community because the full immersion baptism is the one where you as it says you fully immerse yourself in the water um, and you see some out there of big big groups around a, a pool and one by one you get people going yeah, up yeah. Uh, and and, you know, submersing themselves and coming up and, and just being so, um, I suppose, enwrapped with, with the Holy Spirit. Um, yeah. How was how that? The Holy Spirit really is there for those people because they're making such a big commitment. Yeah. 
How was that experience for you? Yeah, I think it helped me to come out of my shell a bit. Um, I was, I've always been, I suppose, somewhat more reserved, like more shy, not really so, um, not like the centre of any one of those communities. So to be, to have to go give my testimony to so many people, um, I think it was just me and one other at that time who were being baptised. Um, it was quite, it was quite an experience and it helped me to reflect and to, again, reconsider what my moment was of, I suppose, being born again. Um, so I, I suppose I, I started to talk about a bit about how I'd been become quite, um, throughout those university years, like I had another moment of that, of becoming a very kind of career-oriented, um, um, one of those, I don't know, rugged individualist people. <laughs> and so <laughs> I, I suppose I spoke about how... Um, you know, Christ had led me away and like helped me to, you know, become a better Christian through that. I kind of had revelation um, about so his most important priority. So when when you were going through that individualistic period, was there there must have always been a part of you that was being drawn back to um, to God and, and to the to the church. Yeah, yeah, it was it was kind of uh, putting the two together. I think putting the individualism with Christianity. I don't, I don't, it's, it's kind of constant mental gymnastics in a way. I suppose it's a bit like what you see in the US, where you have a lot of kind of um, uh, I suppose aspirational uh, libertarianism, um, and then you have the kind of very zealous kind of. Um, Baptist movement or whatever we have there so it was um kind of balancing out between those but this community that was a bit less I suppose a bit less rigidly conservative in their appearance um in, t- in terms of their kind of teachings and attitudes um helped me to come out of that a bit to help me to see that you know Christ is um and there's a lot more to self-deny of myself and to, to it, like, decrease in myself so that he may increase and that kind of teaching. In amongst the teaching of Christianity broad, at, at a broad level, there is on the one hand that individual element where God carves you on the palm of his hand and you are the most important thing in, in the world. But on the other hand, there is the uh, notion of being part of the the body of Christ and being part mm-hmm. of the um, global brotherhood of, of believers that um, contribute to each other's salvation through through pe- through prayer and action. And it's it's very hard for 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 people to try and reconcile those two differences. Um, and find find that middle way where um, their faith is both individualistic and and communal. And you've now left um, that church as well. And what what church are you? Where, where have you found yourself at the moment? So that was I left there in 2017 of the summer, and it was just um, a couple of months before I left that church that. I had this big moment where I started to think about Catholicism. There was, for some reason, I was 
in the middle of this evangelical mission week in my last year of university, um, my last year of undergrad. And it was, it was probably, I would describe it the peak of my kind of evangelical faith in the sense that I felt really involved. Um, I was kind of, I don't know, spending the whole week, like morning, afternoon, evening, these um, mission week events, kind of inviting non-believers in. And kind of why I've always had this kind of evangelistic zeal to the people to come into the church. So it was kind of a real highlight of life for me to be involved in that week. And I saw people, you know, decide to follow Christ during that week. But at the same time, it was very random. I stumbled upon this article um, by Pew Research Centre, I think it was. And they were talking right. about um, trends in South America. They were talking about the evangelization of Catholics in South America and the rates and predictions at which, you know, how quickly all of South America would become um, Protestant rather than Catholic. Um, so obviously, being having the beliefs that I had, I thought, you know, it's amazing. I'm so like glad that, you know, Catholicism is um, <clears throat> declining finally, like after all this time. Um, <laughs> but uh, at the same time, I had this sense of, you know, well, like, hold on a minute, like how big was it there for such a long time? Um, but how like how big is the Catholic Church? So I started to look into it more and realised, you know, just what an impact and like how global the Catholic Church was. And I mean, it should have struck me before, but I didn't really have many Catholic friends um, growing up or didn't really know anybody who was like, you know, really um, uh, zealous or, you know, trying to bring anybody to the Catholic faith. So I looked into it more and I remember in that confusion of like finding out how big it was, asking God for understanding about it because I felt kind of frustrated about how he could allow, you know, the Catholic Church to be the dominant church for 1500 years, kind of somewhat unchallenged. I kind of I did believe these kind of evangelical justifications that there had been these communities that existed for 1500 years, but they were just suppressed and they were the true believers. But I asked God anyway, and I prayed about it. Um, and then it was about two weeks later after praying about that, that I first met these um, online, actually. <laughs> I met these um practicing Catholics for the first time who are very much of the view that the Catholic Church is the one holy apostolic church and um, even that um, you know this one truth is the one objective truth and I had never encountered anybody who had that belief before you know I had only known um, kind of lapsed Catholics who didn't really you know care um, about anybody else being a Catholic so I had to kind of start questioning what my understanding of the Catholic faith was at that time. So that was kind of the, the beginning of my journey into the Catholic Church. A lot of people wouldn't question the way that you seem to question. Um, you've, you've jumped into a church and then you realise that there's elements about it that aren't as appealing to you as, as you might have thought when you got into the church. What what do you think it is that drives you to keep questioning and keep seeking the truth and and are willing to say when you're wrong to move on to 
the next thing. I suppose when I mentioned about feeling like I was at the peak of you know, what evangelical faith offers um, at that time, I also felt this kind of like underlying frustration or like lack of fullness, like a kind of mild emptiness about whether this was it, like whether the rest of my life would look, you know, exactly like this. Like, is there not you know, something a bit more like to the theology of it or um, is it not more fullness to the faith? Um, you know, I saw some things that were lacking in it. So I, I wouldn't say that I was at all open-minded about the Catholic faith when I started um, looking into it. It was actually the opposite. I was actually right. looking to understand it so that I could bring more Catholics to, the, to evangelical uh, right. faith. So I started asking questions of these Catholics, kind of thinking sort of very arrogantly. <laughs> I suppose I was very arrogant in my faith at the time um, that... You know, I thought I'd catch them out that they'd realised that, you know, they actually have to be born again in the charismatic faith to be a Christian. That they can't, you know, remain in um in the kind of what I perceive to be rigid and impersonal faith of Catholicism. That, you know, surely they can't actually have a living relationship with God if they are in the Catholic Church. So I was really hoping, you know, maybe God would use me to inspire them to, you know, come out of the church. Right, that's interesting. But the the reverse sounds like it happened. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. So you never know uh, what's going what's gonna to hit you in life. Um, so I started to realise that, you know, it was actually myself that had a lot of misconceptions, that, you know, they actually somewhat quite understood what was happening in the charismatic movement. It wasn't that they were fully ignorant of it. Um, so it was more myself that didn't quite understand Catholic dogma, you know, I only knew the only knew the very mainstream accusations against Catholicism rather than actually looking into it from a Catholic perspective. Um so only, you know, knew that they overattached to Mary and that compromises their faith and that um, you know, they just go to mass, you know, a few times a year, um and that the Pope is this kind of Idol akin to how we might idolise some celebrity. Um, so, and, and also had a big qualm about um, the the buildings. I kind of became, as I suppose I mentioned earlier, you know, starting my faith in these big festivals, and then you kind of having this um, disattachment to established religion. I was kind of very opposed to it being formalised. So I preferred this kind of outdoor faith or you know being able to worship god regardless of where you are like you don't need a building or anything um so i only had these vague ideas about the faith so when i began to question them the people then they gave such um profound answers because they were you know very much involved in the, in the faith um so that was a real i suppose consider it providential consider it a blessing that they were able to um, inspire me so much. And what were some of the answers that they gave you that really um, spoke to you? I suppose the um, one thing that really attracted me was the unity of the church. Um, so that I, I couldn't, um, I couldn't respond very well to the challenge about you know how many domin- denominations there are. Um, 
outside of the Catholic Church, kind of after the separation. Um, and likewise, with a lot of the history, I, could, I never really read the Church Fathers, only very vaguely, you know, been to some talks about them. Um, so I couldn't really respond to the way that a lot of their writing was quite, um, not all of them, but some of them is quite undeniably Catholic, the way they're writing about the Eucharist and just the general practice of their faith and about the, you know, the bishops and the very organised structure of the early church. I couldn't quite respond to that. Um, so I had to inquire more about it. And, and what was it about that um, unity that you found appealing? So it is the idea that um, if Christ came to institute a church that would um, live until the end of time after he ascended, then surely it would be global and it would be united in creed. Um, so that kind of made a lot of sense. Um, and not just sense, but also had this very, um, I wouldn't want to say feeling, because obviously it shouldn't be about you know feelings <laughs> driven, but I had this kind of real kind of element of, <clears throat> I don't know, divine. There's something that made that just seem very... <clears throat> very beautiful, like this new covenant family God had created that encompasses the whole world. And they were all united um, by the core doctrine. But in the church itself, it's very um, diverse and beautiful in that sense. It's like St. Francis de Sales talks about the bouquet of flowers that represents the church. So you have those lovely, beautiful different flowers. You have the Jesuits, you have the Dominicans, Franciscans. You have you know, people of every kind, um, people of every class, um, people of every race, and all united by, you know, sorry, the structure helps. So you can see why Christ would have instituted, you know, having one Holy Father, then having the cardinals and bishops, and just the way it is structured, I suppose, started to appear to me as being somewhat divine, the fact that it could be so sustainable and long-lasting. You were talking earlier about um, the the fathers of the church and one of the things that they tried so hard to do is to keep the church unified and try to come up with um, doctrines that were universally accepted and true. And even in those days they were facing... Um, what they called heresies. There was the, uh, like, Aranus who mm-hmm. put forward the idea God was, or Jesus was half half man, half God. Um, and that was just a constant battle for them to keep that, that church united. And and ultimately they obviously weren't able to do it because, um we, we have the, the different elements of Christianity that we do today. But there is something about the, the Catholic lineage that can trace itself all the way back to um, Peter and ultimately Jesus that um, some of the other churches just, just don't really have. Um, and, and do you see that, that, that continuous line back to Jesus as, as a really fundamental um, attribute that draws you to the Catholic Church? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's, I suppose, one of the main things as well I should have mentioned. Um, this kind of idea that um, what, I, what I believe is a, the truth that Christ breathed on the apostles um, and that kind of divine inspiration has you know, continued and broken um, and still is with us now um, through the, you know, those who have inherited that um, apostolic ordination. Um, so that's definitely, yeah inspiring part of it yeah and you've now had a a third baptism into the catholic church (laughs) it's actually um coincidentally it's um in two days it will be my second year anniversary of being received into the catholic church oh happy anniversary (laughs) thank you yeah Yeah. and and so how how have you found um this is quite a broad question but how have you found that your faith has changed since um, since being baptised into the, the Catholic Church? Um, I'd say it's a lot less reliant on, um, I suppose, emotion. Um, I don't want to dismiss any of my former faith or any of my former churches as being too reliant on emotion, but I would say that it was definitely a big part of it, um, that you know the the music the praise music can be very emotive it can really inspire you know certain feelings which aren't bad but i became quite reliant on that i became quite reliant on um having you know praise music to uplift me in my face you know day to day trying to inspire me to think about god um but now i'd say um quite shocked really at how much now i use um written prayers and how much i use Um, kind of chaplets and rosaries. Um, I never, you know, would have expected to um, be using kind of that formulaic kind of way of doing things, but actually it is really helpful and uh, helps me actually to pray more and to be more um, you know, giving of my time in prayer to be to be able to pray more flexibly as well. Like ironically, actually, um, so I think. That's definitely helped in that respect. Um, how else it's changed? Um, yeah, I'm not too sure, really. What what aspects would you be expecting to change? Um, I don't know. I, I suppose the, the prayer aspect is obviously massive because that's really where you are coming into a um, direct and personal relationship with, with God. Um but I suppose also you, you mentioned the the different types of services where the um, evangelical services are um, a bit more fluid and they um, sort of follow um, a very vibrant pattern where they have the the music and the speakers, but the speakers will be will change and they'll get dif- different people in to preach and. The, the way that they structure their their ceremonies um, differs a little bit, whereas the Catholic um, mass is obviously uh, been going on in one form or another for for quite a while. Um, but it sounds like you have found almost solace in that um, in that repetition. I suppose so. Yeah. So I. When I was first joining the church, I was introduced to the traditional Latin Mass, which is obviously the Tridentine Mass, which has been, um, I suppose it was codified in, in 1570. 
Um, Kill could be wrong. Hopefully, it's not wrong. Um, yeah, no. That's right, that's right. <laughs> and uh, but obviously we believe that um, this was a mass that Christ would have inst- introduced to the apostles at the the institution of the Holy Eucharist on Monday Thursday before his crucifixion, um, that this is the way that the apostles would have said the mass. Um, so um, that's been very, I think the traditional Latin mass is definitely the, you know, they call it the, um, center and summit, I think, um, of the Christian life, because that's where um, Christ is sac- Christ is sacrificed on the cross, and that's the you know basis of our hope, the fact that he was sacrificed on the cross, and obviously the resurrection along with that. Um, but with that, I think it changes theology, it changes our theology, because one example is that I've heard people say that when they've transitioned from attending a usual mass, whether that's Protestant or Catholic, um, New Rite, that was introduced in the 60s, um, they changes their theology and their way of thinking. So as you probably know, the, the orientation is towards the altar in the traditional Latin mass. And um, it's very much that we are going with the priest um, into into prayer into worship of god um and it's a lot more just the appearance is a lot more sacrificial it's how you would imagine that um some of the maybe some of the old testament sacrifices would have looked um in the sense that they were pleading with god and pleading with god to have mercy on us um rather than expecting it and just thinking that the kind of expecting attitude that we're already there. Um, it's like kind of all on our knees together, pleading with God for mercy. Um, so that changes theology. So I've heard people describe that that was the moment that their their whole theology and way they lived out their faith became more self-sacrificial because they understood Christianity to be to be more about sacrifice that it was not about their comfort or entertainment, that they weren't going to church to be entertained. Um, so I very much felt that when I started going, I was not at all comfortable with the traditional Latin mass. I did not enjoy it at all. Like I wasn't going there for my entertainment. It was actually quite <laughs> difficult. Yeah, um, so actually the first few months I attended mass, um, you know, I would cry when I went there because it was just so uncomfortable to me and just so unfamiliar. Um, and yeah, it's, it's not something that, I mean, even now when I go, um, until the point of the Holy Communion, I always have this, again, it's not feelings based, but always have this deep, um, dark kind of, I wouldn't say, um, like full desolation or anything, but I just always feel very, um, you know, distant not distant but low just very uncomfortable um and I suppose that's an attitude that I've asked God to give me as well that I would feel more like I'm at the foot of the cross when I'm at mass because as Christians we should be at the foot of the cross asking for mercy um so that's definitely you know <laughs> changed how I go to church because it's no longer about going and socialising with people. It's about going to ask God for mercy and, you know, hopefully being redeemed um, at the moment of the Holy Communion. In the evangelical church, one of the parts of it is 
uh, as we've sort of spoken about, is that it's quite uplifting. Um, and you, you, the, the music is sort of usually very loud. It's um, usually quite a major key. It makes you feel really good. It releases, releases a lot of endorphins. Basically, you're, you're almost at a rock concert and um, you, you're high on life when, when all those sounds are playing and, and the music's really good. And so going from that to a traditional mass where you're self-referential, you're very humble, um, and as you say, you're you're asking for mercy, is almost as far away from that evangelical experience that you could get, which um, which is quite interesting for you because you you you've experienced both. Um, and do you see that that humility that comes with the traditionalist mass is um, almost paradoxically uplifting because through that you you are able to get um, as you say to to the foot of the cross. It's a really good observation and question. Um, I would say it definitely does give that kind of stability to. The joy, I suppose the joy that St. Paul talks about, the joy that's constant, that no matter what suffering you're going through, no matter what the apparent highs and lows of life are, that in like continual joy is always with you. So I think I definitely do have that more, that I'm not now relying on you know, the endorphins produced by music to give me that joy. I feel like it's now more directly from you know the source of the bread of life, the, the, the source of the bread of life that... Is given through the sacraments and the grace of God. So I feel that, yeah, even though it's not this appearance of, you know, constantly you know, going around um, smiling and evangelising at people, it's um, just kind of, you know, I feel as if it is this true joy that um, we, were, we were supposed to have. And also you mentioned the silence difference, and that's definitely a huge part of it it's really uncomfortable obviously to be kneeling in silence for you know generally over half an hour often over an hour and obviously cardinal um, robert sarah you might have had his book the power of silence he um, writes really beautifully about you know how silence is very challenging to us it forces us to reflect on our lives and it's not exactly natural in our world today where a lot of chaos of noise reigns that we're always filling our ears with some kind of noise and so we're never actually contemplating our lives we're never contemplating god we're never contemplating that you know we should be um, having this continual memento mori i suppose like remembering that we're going to die remembering that if death could come tomorrow are we ready are we prepared and that silence i think is um a way to be able to truly live um in that way, obviously, Christ was silent for a lot of his life. He went away to the mountains a lot to be in silence and solitude, to speak with the Father. And I think this is what a lot of the church is missing today. A lot of the rest, um, a lot of um, the both the, the new rite of the Mass and different Protestant forms of services, they're missing this silence that really, I think, is integral to Christianity. Um, I remember reading in um, 
San Augustine's confessions is one of his big things is um, being in silence and, and going within. Do you, do you spend a lot of time in, um, in prayer and meditation? What's your sort of routine or how do, how do you go about personally coming to, coming to God outside of Mass? So it's definitely one of these things that I feel I always feel I should be doing so much better or so much so much more of. You know, I read, I love to read the lives of the saints, and so obviously reading them makes me feel like a complete worm all the time that I'm not <laughs> devoted enough. That I still have so much further to go. You know, I'm not. Um, oh, don't beat I, yourself up, Emma. <laughs> I'm not um, flagellating or uh, receiving. You know ninth level of prayer or anything um but I suppose it's a journey um one thing I do love to do is to have um I tend to say my rosary on a walk every day which I mean is a bit but you could say it's perhaps a bit of a cop out because it's quite nice do you know to walk around and say the rosary while you know contemplating the sky and the trees but yeah I, I find that it helps me to have that routine of um praying it so I always know that I'm saying it on my walk rather than leaving it to the last moment of the day and then falling asleep um and then I like to I have a daily missile and that helps me in the sense that it has um you know morning and evening prayers where you can consecrate your day to God to Jesus through Mary as well I recently did this Marian consecration um as you might have heard of um so where you consecrate yourself to Mary through 33 days. And so it's the idea that she helps lead us to Christ, um, which I mean, she does. You know, she gave birth to him and she continually in her life on earth presented Christ to people. So it's the idea that she would help us come closer to Christ um, now as well um, from her place in heaven. Um, so I've done that recently and and I'll try and say the recite the um, consecration commitment to Mary, uh, maybe once a week, but I only completed it recently. Yeah, and then occasionally, I suppose I do try and say things like the litany of humility, um, which always <laughs> actually does have a big effect. I always realise that after I've said the litany of humility, um, something really humiliating or um embarrassing happens do you want to just talk us through what the litany of humility is yeah so i mean i could maybe read a part of it or something really beautiful i think reflects a lot of this sacrificial part of our faith that does help us deny ourselves and live wholly for christ um and it's quite challenging i think i don't think you can say it lightheartedly because you have to really mean what you're saying so part of it so it begins oh jesus meek and humble of heart hear me from the desire of being esteemed deliver me oh jesus and then it lists these different desires and asks um, jesus to deliver us from them so from the desire of being loved deliver me from the desire of being extolled from the desire of being honored of being praised of being preferred to others and then from the fear of being humiliated the fear of being despised. And so it's very much um, reflecting how Christ was on the cross, that he was mocked, calumniated, humiliated, but he accepted that. And that's, as Christians, how we should live. And one of the quite profound parts as well, um, that 
people might have to reflect on before they read is um, that others may become holier than I, which you would think is quite a strange thing to say, because obviously as Christians, we want to become perfect and holy, but it says that others may become holier than I, provided I may become as holy as I should. Jesus grant me the grace to desire it. Um, so I think that captures a lot of the faith and definitely helps me to live more in the way that I envisage Christianity to be. It sounds like you've read quite a lot about both in, in the Catholic tradition and I suppose in your your earlier Protestant and, and Church of England times. What what would you say is one of the the best things that you've read or a teaching that of 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 the church that you keep coming back to that you find the most inspiring or that draws you the closest to God? That's a difficult one. Do we have any examples? Yeah, I, I remember one. One for me was when I when I was sort of reaching a a mature age, but not a mature mindset. Was the idea of of God being in everyone, and that idea to me was quite profound and gave um, and definitely changed my outlook on life. Instead of seeing just a random person on the train or on the footpath. It's it's the embodiment of, of God, which um, and and you and you're trying to you know help those people who are less needy because they are because they're they're a a part of Jesus's body. Um, so that for me was a, was a teaching that I found uh, that I sort of drew a lot of uh, inspiration from and really changed my life. Has there been something like that for you that it doesn't have to be obviously the the most important, but something that you found that has really sort of helped you helped you on your on your spiritual journey? I suppose just the the life of the saints have really I suppose been the most prominent part of my faith in the past year or so. Just kind of reading about the the fact that they were ready to die whenever they were living wholly for God in the fact that, you know, Christianity, I suppose it was introduced to me when I was an Anglican as well, the idea of um, C.S. Lewis, for example, that if Christianity is false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance, the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. So I suppose this is, as you were asking earlier as well, and reflecting on earlier, um, kind of, lifelong conviction of mine that Christianity has to be the kind of centre of our lives because it's the only thing that matters. And I was reading recently um, um, just this um, quotation from Dostoevsky um, where he talks about how without Christ, who is the divine man, we're living in this world where we're just following the man, like we're not following like... um, the ultimate goal of life, which is to be like Christ. Yeah, and, and that comes back to the um, those uh, so-called heresies that we were talking about before of Jesus not being fully God, that, that the church was so adamant to do away with in its early times and, and resulted in, in the first council of Nicaea in 325. Yeah, so this uh, quotation I found quite profound as well. It kind of captures 
um, a lot that, that about the state of the world today is that the West has lost Christ, and that is why it's dying, and that is the only reason. And that he's quite keen on the idea that we have a choice between the man-god of the atheists or the god-man of Christian revelation. And it's a choice that each one of us has to make, whether we're going to follow the the man-god that is kind of anthropocentrism that has crept in the past few centuries into the West, um, or we have this um, divine god who became man and that's who we follow and i think the west is obviously in recent times chosen the former but we have to to get back to you know truth goodness and beauty we have to choose christ we have to choose the revelation of christianity and why why do you think the um the divine nature of jesus is so important uh, well, I suppose quite simply is just that I believe everything the Catholic Church teaches. So I believe that um, that has been revealed truth. And so because it's true, you know, we have to believe that um, it is. And I mean, I suppose without the divine nature of Christ, then we'd be lost because it's his divine sacrifice on the cross that you know, provides a justification that he is the the sacrifices of the old, the sacrifices that were immolated on the altar in the Old Testament, they can no longer save us. And that's quite clearly what God's revealed to us in Scripture. So we needed a more perfect sacrifice. And I suppose we can't reach perfection without that divine nature. The, the sacrifice cannot be perfect without the divine nature of Christ and the fact that he was... There was no error in anything that he taught. He was wholly divine, which is therefore wholly who we should imitate. Yeah, and I suppose it's that God coming into the the form of a, a man that provides us all um, an inspiration for our own lives. And likewise, as you were saying with the councils, the early councils, um, that the Council of Ephesus, which followed, I think, just a century after, um, I had never really encountered that before the last couple of years. And obviously within that, they're defining and like combating the kind of um, Aryan views. And one way they do that is by defining Mary as the mother of God. And um, I think to a lot of Protestant ears, that sounds almost blasphemous as a statement, you know, mother of God, like she's not the creator of God, like God. Um, but it's a key key part of Catholicism because she she gives Christ his human nature and her humble and docile yes is what enables our um, redemption. So it's what enables, you know, God coming into the world. So... That's another recent. This is another recent revelation. Well, not revelation, but obedience I've started to have to the church that she is really a big part of our journey with Christ. That she helps us become closer to Christ, and that we do also need her help because she was kind of that her that we can also imitate in her docility and her humility and. She gives, yeah, rise to this divine, divine God. So obviously that's quite a crucial moment for Christianity, that that was um, a key term to combat Arianism.
Yeah, the the figure of Mary has been um, a divisive of uh, <laughs> um, Christianity's uh, history, uh, which which is an interesting which is an interesting concept because um, for for sort of the mother of God to to be so divisive really shows you the importance of the idea um, of the divinity of God and that for for those that believe it and for those that don't, it is such an important, important idea. Yeah, and some of the saints have written as well about how um, she is the most hated of the devil because Christ obviously is perfect because he is divine, whereas she is just a creature She's a creature, and yet she was wholly submissive to God. She was wholly docile, and she was perfect because she was full of God's grace. Um, so that's why the devil hates her so much, because she should just be among all the rest of us fallen creatures. She should be, you know, falling into his hands on the highway, you know, the wide path to hell, you know, as he wants. But instead, she's this creature who has such such fullness of grace that she has, you know, all the traits of truth, beauty, goodness, lack of stain of sin. Yeah, so that's another. Yeah, and I suppose it's that humility and um, submissiveness that allows her to stay on that 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 right path. And Ellen, you're still uh, quite young. You're only a couple of years out of university. Um, where do you see your faith going from here? So I, yeah, it's been a quick I suppose it felt quite quick how I came into the church because I started my conversion classes in um the September that I began my postgrad um, which was 2017 um and then I was received into the church just after about six months of classes but I felt quite ready um to make that commitment and even before I was fully received into the church I was thinking you know what the what the what my vocation is, I suppose. I suppose we all have to consider our vocation in terms of how we're serving God in this world. Um, so before I was received, I started looking into what the Catholic Church teaches about vocation um, and how we have to go about thinking about it. And especially in the traditional circles, they expect that everybody must consider a religious vocation because so this is our kind of holy spiritual side where we don't have to consider any earthly concerns as St Paul writes about in um, 2 Corinthians um, he writes about how if if you're married you're um, you have to consider things of the world you have to consider earthly things whereas if you're unmarried and you're very in that state of life you can more wholly serve God without distraction so definitely found in my life that um, even since I was an evangelical, I was quite drawn to the idea of kind of lifelong singleness and being able to serve God in that, um, in the way that I saw that some of the um, the women around the apostles in the early church, they were, how I read the Bible, they were, they were these single women serving the church and having a profound effect, you know, being able to help others to truly serve God. Um, and I've definitely found that it is perhaps somewhat easier like just practically to live in that way but I haven't yet spent time with any religious orders so um I spent time on monastic retreats which are just kind of mixed gender ones but I have not yet 
and I spent time in a community of sisters. Um, apart from recently, I did start living with this um, community in London, um, who I'm hopefully will go back to live with when this crisis de-escalates. But that's kind of, there's a lot, there's a lot of girls living there with them. Um, and sadly, I don't get to spend too much time with the sisters. What, what sisters are those, sorry? So these are Spanish sisters, and they have they have a charism that's quite focused on... I mean, they are habited, um, and they have a charism that's focused on, I suppose, serving the, serving the least, serving the neediest. But they also, you know, it's quite nice living with them because they have two chapels, um, and they have, you know, exposition, they have mass, and it's just very joyful to kind of see their faces when you're living there. Um, but yeah, as I say, I don't really spend too much time with them while I'm there because I'm working. But um, I was hoping before this um, coronavirus situation escalated to be able to visit um, a few orders in Europe where I would be able to spend more time in, I suppose as we were talking about, the kind of silent retreat um, where you can more silently contemplate. And I don't know if it's just this kind of selfish I um idea that I want to you know, have more of God for myself I want to have more time for God for myself um, or whether it is actually following some kind of calling but hopefully when we lose God, God's will I suppose I consider everything as providence um, hopefully that will be able to happen at some point that I'll be able to see what the life is like for these sisters who are living um, in different ways like they're mixed between contemplative and active sisters but I think I would um always regret not least you know seeing what it's like and seeing whether that was the way that God wanted me to live out my faith in this life yeah definitely it's definitely an interesting it's an interesting calling at least that you're having those um those uh those urges to to follow that sort of path because um increasingly it's a it's becoming uh, a path less traveled and so going down that road is is sort of at odds with with what most people are doing with their life and so you definitely need to have some sort of drive to 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 be doing that sort of thing yeah interestingly i've heard of a few cases recently of kind of mutual friends who've gone maybe to a different continent to join um to join an order which i mean obviously is inspiring when you actually encounter people like that and you've realized that it's not some far-fetched idea you know there are people today still doing this um and increasingly it is among traditional orders which i think will eventually outnumber um a lot of the more um modern catholic groups um because it seems that their trend in vocations is a lot higher but i mean we'll see how that goes and obviously it's up to providence but um yeah really interesting to see what the, what the world would look like if it's still here in 10 years. Yeah, well, at the moment, 10 years would be pretty good. But what talking, I suppose, a little bit more in the present, this week being Holy Week, um, how, uh, how are you and how's your church going to um, try and deal with the, the issue of enforced isolation at a time which is usually about bringing um, the believers together? Yeah, it's really difficult. So I actually mostly attend this group. I don't know if you've heard of them, but they're called the Society of St. Pius X. Yeah, and um, they were actually one of the last to close down their um, mass, mass and their chapels because um, they're a bit less attached to kind of diocesan 
instructions. So they they remained open until you know, Sunday before last, and now they're live streaming um, all of their mass, which I mean is not so bad. I, I quite enjoy being able to travel around the world to follow live stream mass and visit different places. It's been quite nice actually, and just to be in like a little quiet room following that, and probably not as prayerful or as less distracted as it would be in a chapel but it's at least been nice I think Holy Week will be very surreal I mean I've only been a Catholic for two years so I definitely don't think it's as difficult for me as it is for lifelong Catholics who are much more used to being at church in Easter I mean when I was an evangelical wouldn't really go more than usual during Easter just go once probably but now it is you know beautiful to go to go to the stations of the cross to be able to have the Palm Sunday and to kiss the relic of the cross. So it would be bizarre, but I think I was reading um, a quote by St. Teresa Benedict of the Cross recently, who was this um, Jewish convert, who was, um, sorry, a Jewish um, convert who became a Carmelite. And she wrote about, she was very contemplative, and she wrote about, because she ended up in Auschwitz, I think it was, and obviously she had no access to the mass then. I mean, obviously that's a very dramatically different situation to the one we're in, but she wrote about how it was a time at which God was looking to encounter people spiritually in a different way. There's um, a new opportunity when we're deprived, I suppose, and it's almost very apt that we're in this moment during Lent, because... We have to, it seems strange to say, but we have to sacrifice the sacraments as well sometimes in the sense that we can't always expect to be served and to just have them at our feet. I mean, a lot of the world, the persecuted church lives like this most of the time. So maybe it's good in a sense that we can put ourselves in their shoes. Um, so I think, especially thinking about, I think, was it last year when the Sri Lanka Easter Sunday attack happened? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, especially thinking about that, I think we can put ourselves into their shoes at least slightly more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to that we can treat it as, as a period of, of solidarity through isolation, which um, you probably saw those, those photos of the or the, the, the videos of the Pope coming out into um, St. Peter's Square. Yeah, um, it's striking. I think it was last week, yeah, and there... They're incredible, and just the the reaction around the around the world was um, pretty spectacular. Everyone sort of seemed to be coming around and 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 praying through that um, pontifical performance, I suppose. But also coming back to your the prayer that you were talking about earlier, when you said um, it's I'm going to get the words wrong, but you said it's. Uh, allow me to give up the desire for love. A lot of people would uh, hear that and think that that is quite an odd message to be coming from a, a God that uh, provides unbounded love to all of us. But we can get attached to, to certain things, whether it be the, um, the communal liturgy or that, that desire for love. So... I think you're right when you say it's um, providing an opportunity for all of us to um, reassess and experience God through a different way. Yeah, I definitely think the inno- like innovation has been really 
inspiring to see um i have a friend uh in norway and she is kind of calling her priest to kind of sing parts for the choir um and then uh yeah just seeing all the live streams and seeing all the novel ways priests are <clears throat> accessing the faithful whether, whether it's in um car parks or <clears throat> whether it's confession you know in a car park or mass in a car park um it's been really you know, beautiful to see like how important the faith is that people are still um you know desperately seeking to to live it i mean we often look to examples in asia where they they are persecuted um and so you can see the desperation more clearly and it's more inspiring but it's really nice to see that we do have those people in our midst here as well who are going yeah. out of their way to offer us, you know, the sacraments to offer us, um, you know, the teaching of, of our Lord. Yeah, and I suppose now it's probably not a bad time to have um, Easter roll around. Mm. Yeah, I think it's, I, I would say it's providential, really, at least that's my own view, that this happened at this time. I mean, who knows how long it would go on for, but I think it's... Um, it was say I was reading recently about how quarantine um, is a word that can be quite attached to and derived from forty days. Um, so there's like medieval examples of poetry and things where um, it's attached to Lent, um, the word quarantine. So I mean that's definitely an interesting thing to think about, like whether this there was a meaning to that, whether there's that's just a coincidence or whether yeah. this was a prompt. <laughs> But I think I just have to try and spend more time in prayer, I suppose, than usual. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, it's a great way to do that because um, there's only so many other things that we can do while isolated. <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering yeah. if this will prompt many people to to spend time that way because there are so many distractions now, I suppose, with the internet. But it'd be interesting if many people are prompted to spend the time more spiritually or not. Yeah, bring on the silence. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, Eleanor, it's been fantastic to talk to you. Yeah, it's been lovely, yeah. Even even remotely. Um, <laughs> but I feel it's been a very uh, – oh, I mean, I've, I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you have as well. Um, and it sounds like you've got uh, quite an interesting – few years and 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 life ahead of you with your with your spiritual direction so we might need to um regroup in uh, after a period of time and and see where you're up to um but yeah thank you thanks for coming on on virtually for our first virtual session thank you for inviting me